0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 347 and my conversation with composer, conductor, Fulbright scholar, and the professor of composition and theory at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York, Jennifer Jolly. I'll check back in with her shortly. A couple of things before we get started. One, I just returned from a fantastic trip with my wife, to a conference of hers in Toronto, Canada. I'll be talking more about this trip and one of the places I got to visit in the rave at the end of the interview, so make sure to stay tuned for that. And two, I just wanted to, on the show, publicly show my support for Josh Jones. If you're on social media and are a member of the percussion community in some way, you are likely aware of the situation. If you're not... Josh is, at this time still, the principal percussionist for the Kansas City Symphony, an organization that, full disclosure, though I live two hours away, I have no affiliation with. However, it was shocking to learn, late last month, that Josh was denied tenure, thus ending his time with the organization. The hashtag, TenureJosh, has been going around and should still do so. And it's been a weird and upsetting situation all around, considering how little is really known about why he's been denied and about how highly he is respected throughout the percussion community. I don't have any answers here, just publicly stating my support. I would also suggest following the pages for the Black Orchestral Network, which has been updating this situation with regularity, and you can hear a discussion about this on the Classically Black podcast this week, which discusses the situation right around the 50-minute mark in their May 29th episode. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. If you're interested in learning more about Josh through this show, I did have him on pre-pandemic in early 2020, while he was still with the Calgary Philharmonic. We did a two-part episode, numbers 174 and 175, and you can listen through the links in the show notes. We had a great talk, and you'll understand more about why he's thought of so highly in the percussion community. Seeing no great segue at this point, let's move on and get to today's guest, Jennifer Jolly. I'd been fortunate to get a chance to meet and chat with Jen quite a bit when she was a guest at the University of Missouri last year through the Bands Program and the Missouri New Music Initiative. The ensembles at the school performed some of her works. She did some conducting and composition lesson teaching, And we all did a great deal of hanging out. I was thrilled she was up for being a guest on the show. So here we are. Jennifer Jolly has been active as a composer and teacher for many years. She currently teaches at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York, and previously held positions at Ohio Wesleyan University and Texas Tech. This past semester, she just finished her time living and working in Egypt on a Fulbright scholarship. Her compositions have spanned solo, chamber, and large ensemble works and have included works for concert band, video games, opera, chamber groups of all varieties, including percussion solo. And her inspiration for her works comes from many political, environmental, musical, and social situations, along with a lot more. We talk about much of this, as well as food, cats, the Beach Boys, the L.A. Dodgers, travel, and so much more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 14th, 2023, and it begins right now. So, Jen, you are talking to me from Egypt. Why are you in Egypt?
1: I'm assuming this will be released later, but um, I got a Fulbright to teach in Egypt and Cairo at Helwan University Faculty of Music Education. I've been doing that for the last few months. It's been interesting and great and challenging, so uh, that's, that's why I'm here. And in the meantime, I got to, uh, I don't know, go see the pyramids. I can see the Nile from my apartment. It's kind of wild. So that, that's why I'm here.
0: What prompted you to want to, one, go for a Fulbright, and then two, why Egypt for your place of study?
1: I've kind of always wanted a Fulbright. I didn't know a Fulbright existed until I was an undergrad and I was studying with my teacher, Stephen Hartke at USC at the time. And I was like, I got to get out of Los Angeles because I like lived in Los Angeles all my life. I was like, oh. I want to know what snow looks like. I know that that seems very (laughs) naive and whatnot, but uh, I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to live abroad. I never had a study abroad experience at the undergrad level or or in high school. So I wanted to do that. Uh, My first attempt was applying to go study at the Sibelius Academy in Finland. I was like, sure. Uh, Esapeka Salonen is from there. Nokia. Uh, fish shark, scissors, and also they claim Santa Claus. So why not? Mm. Um, and so snow the, would be
0: so there would be a chance for snow. You felt like that was a good be shot. A
1: chance. There would be a chance for snow. Probably some magic, you know. Yeah.
0: Um, Northern and, lights, uh, you know. The
1: Northern lights, and the Bellas Academy seemed pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I definitely got rejected, um, and so I've been. <laughs> Kind of when the opportunity would present itself. um, Now that I'm a professor person, um, then I can apply to be a scholar. Yeah, so I applied uh, last uh, two years ago to Estonia, which is like during the pandemic. What was fascinating about that program was they have like the best internet in the world, maybe outside of like South Korea. That's my pride. I'm half Korean there. Um, But uh, I was like, you know, performances have definitely been curtailed and stagnated and Zoom can only do so much. And, you know, Estonia was um, they actually invented Skype until, you know, and it was great until Microsoft took over. But anyways, um, I was proposing having some kind of like live improvisation. Yeah. With that, made the final round, did not get it. I was like, all right, I'll play again. This time I should really be music specific because with the Estonia grant, it was like they had some musical things, but I think it was more commercial music. And actually Egypt has a very specific um, demand for performing artists and musical people to teach in Cairo. And so that's why Egypt, um, I was like totally getting rejected whatever. And then um, I was I was literally moving from my house in Texas because I got a new job at uh, Lehman College in the Bronx. And they're like, congratulations, you got a full brain. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, uh, so that's why I'm here. Um, and that's why Egypt, I'm actually really thankful I'm here. I've learned a lot. It's made me be very thankful about certain things like internet, drinkable tap water, seat belts, also a thing. Um, but I also got to meet my colleague, Nahla Matar, who, um, who's been absolutely wonderful. And I'm glad we got to spend time together and she's such a great colleague and such a great composer. So um, yeah, so those, those are my experiences. I think one of these days I will write about my experience in Egypt and also help anybody who wants to visit or if they wanna live here, then cool.
0: Going over there, is there um, a schedule that you have to have or do you have, what's the are you working with the university or are you just basically you're there and you have a lot of free reign in terms of what you do with your time?
1: Um, I am working with the university, um, so they have specific class times. Uh, one thing I noticed about Egypt is that their Monday through Friday work week is actually Sunday through Thursday. Friday is their holy day. That being said, for some reason, I did teach the main chunk of my teaching assignment on Saturdays. So I had like two music theory classes. Um, On Monday, I had uh, two graduate students. So it was kind of an independent study. I mean, if more would have shown up, that would have been great. So on Mondays, I would teach um, like electronic music, uh, electronic music history, and also uh, music since 1945. For the first part, I did a keyboard seminar. So that was interesting because I've never taught a keyboard class before, but I was a pianist by trade. So cool, but they don't have a piano lab. And in fact, I think most of the upright pianos didn't have a a music stand. So a lot of students were kind of like tucking in their music to the the lid. (laughs) Um, And, you know, tuning, like, I don't know. I mean, there's no... There's no uh, AC in these buildings. There's no internet in these buildings. You're talking, again, it's it's like stuck in the 90s with like the rotating fans. So Mm -hmm. also I was supposed to teach keyboard music with their specific mockum or their scales and that's microtones anyway. And I'm like, we're all in microtonal. like microtonal music exists all the time. So it's like, whatever. Um, so that was my set schedule. Um, what I found very interesting was that classes only met once a week. So you're talking about your music theory, RL skills classes or keyboard classes that meet three times a week in the States. They only meet once a week. And then, during Ramadan, the classes were reduced because this is a 90% Muslim country and they try to squeeze them in so that, you know, they're not too tired. Yes, they're hungry and thirsty, but once the sun set hits, it's like, woo, because you think so, like, it's more of a sleep pattern thing. Like, yo, like I'm actually very thankful I got to experience Egypt during Ramadan, but it's like, it's wild. So like, that's your teaching schedule like reduced in ramadan i don't i think i came in but my uh my colleague uh nahla dr nahla i'm like dr jennifer here yeah. um she's like we don't learn anything in the spring semester so let's just like do it all in the fall because like once ramadan starts and it's like that and then it's like coptic easter and then it's like all these holidays I just work here. So I did have a set schedule. <laughs> it was all during daylight hours, um, but pretty free elsewhere. So like, I was like lesson planning. I did. Sure. Tr- I was like, maybe I should learn some Arabic while I was here, but then it got too intense. And I was like, no. So uh, yeah, that's how teaching has been out here. It's been a trip.
0: That's amazing. It is. <laughs> so okay related on the on the Ramadan part what is is everything just super quiet during the during the daylight hours
1: Yes actually there is this really busy street called 26th of July I don't know if you figured this out Egypt has a lot of history like mm-hmm. a lot of it yeah, yeah. so um that street was named after something I should know about maybe it has something to do with the Suez Canal I'm guessing that's it it's usually so busy, so packed. There are stoplights, maybe, definitely a lot of traffic control. Uh, traffic is insane. And the first day of Ramadan, my colleague was like, I think I can do some yoga, like, out in the middle of the street. Like, very <laughs> quiet. A lot of stores um, were closed unless they were, like, supermarkets um, because you wanted to, like, buy for your break fast or your, um, iftar in the evening, mm-hmm. um, very quiet and peaceful. And I actually liked that about the holiday. And that's something that, um, uh, some Egyptians say it's just like a peaceful kind of spiritual thing. Um, restaurants are also open because like there's some exceptions for fasting. So you can like quietly do stuff, but it was actually, I take that back really hard to find restaurants open until, Iftar, um, because, the, but then people have reservations. So it was like quiet, you hear prayers. And then again, once sunset hits, it's like, okay, we can eat. And I think there are like two different types of the Muslims where it's like one, you either want to eat all the things or two, you want to get your smoke in. So it's like one or the other. So yes, during the daylight hours, pretty peaceful, pretty yeah. chill. And then like Ramadan gone wild. Well, not, but actually, like, concerts were postponed until, like, 9 Mm p.m. So, you know, so that you could have your meal with your family or whomever and then do the thing. Wild time.
0: (laughs) Absolutely wild. So what time was sunset, typically?
1: Uh, Around 6.30. Um, It it changed daily, you know. Sure. kind of stretched out, but uh, I, I had a smartwatch where they're like, I went to an iftar and they're like, can we? And I said, yes, we're good. <laughs> so I felt very proud that I knew when sunset was. I'm like, you can go uh, eat your date and sip your water now. Nice. <laughs> and eat all the things.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's amazing. During your time there, are you still uh, how is the, comp- your compositional part of your career still working or or managing while you're doing this teaching and everything you're doing there?
1: Uh, yeah. So um, I was wrapping up a piece for a uh, Wind Ensemble and Brass Quintet. And I was kind of like working on that. Uh, oh, and I also I'm trying to remember, I think I was wrapping up like the first couple of weeks, like ideally I wanted to do it sooner, but also like I moved across country and started a new job. So I was I was wrapping up some pieces. There's a part of me that was like, okay, I should probably start on a new piece because I have a couple of pieces due in August. One for um, marimba and bass uh, clarinet for uh, transient canvas. Sweet. And then um, a solo saxophone piece for my former student, Claire Solly. And I think now is the time because I think I'm done teaching. But according to the academic calendar, I'm not, I don't know. I just work here. So now is a time for me to kind of get back on the swing of things, like really just sit my ass down in front of a piano and get going. Um I am in the States this week. So next week, next week I'll do it. Yay. <laughs> um, while well, I have the time because like I do have the luxury of time now, uh, amongst other things. So um it's always a balance. Um, I feel like the balance is a little elusive. I usually get my best work done when I don't have to teach. Sure. I try. Yeah. Yeah. Still figuring it out. It's okay.
0: Yeah. You, for the Fulbright, how, how long are you, do you, does that wrap up soon or do you still go for a while?
1: Um, I have less than one month to go. Um, okay. so specifically for the performing art Fulbright, it's either a fall semester or spring semester, and is supposed to conform to the academic calendar. Fun fact about Egypt. Oh, well, it's a Mediterranean country. So the whole planning and academic calendar doesn't really exist online unless you're at the American university in Cairo. And I was like, Oh, they have an academic calendar. It's what it is. So um, I have less than one month to go. And I get to see my cats soon. I'm really excited about that. (laughs) I know.
0: (laughs) You know, daily life in Egypt. What are things that like, okay, you would never know that this was a thing you had to worry about until you're there all the time.
1: I I would say that no one here drinks the tap water. Um, and it's because um, their system of making the tap water potable is very chlorinated. So it mm. doesn't taste so great. Probably not great for your stomach. So um, one thing about daily life is I figured out how to have two five-gallon drums of water delivered to my place once a week. That has been a little bit of a challenge. So like Nestle waters comes to my apartment. So that is definitely something about daily life. I don't use a water bottle to brush my teeth in. That's fine. Um, I don't like when I shower, I'm like, okay, maybe I might be absorbing some chlorine, but it's negligible. But that is something about daily life that I didn't like, I didn't know about, like I heard about it, but I didn't understand the whole water delivery thing. And
0: how long did it take you figured, to figure that out?
1: Um. Well, I, um, probably two weeks into it. I knew that one of my colleagues had water delivery. I got a five gallon drum from Amazon here. But the thing is, is that recycling is not a thing, but it is. So like, I miss recycling. I put everything in my trash and I was like, I can't just like order these like five gallon drums and not have recycling and just throw it out. They do have recycling. Everything goes to a place called garbage city and people just go through the trash and separate it. Um, It took me a while. And then like I tried going online to their website. It didn't work. Um, I tried. Did I try calling them. I don't know. I tried doing WhatsApp that took a long time calling them and getting a delivery system. And then you have to buy coupons. Uh, it's, I bought my last book of coupons. This will end soon. <laughs> but no, it's like, it's an ordeal. Cause I just, you know, at least if somebody comes by, then I can switch out the big drums of water and that's the thing. But like, I didn't realize that it would be a little tedious with the water coupons and the switching it out and making sure that maybe you were home or you can give it to your doorman. That's the thing. That's the thing with daily life. And then quickly, um, I do hear prayers like six times a day. Hmm. That is part of my daily life, which is cool.
0: (laughs) Did did you notice anything working with the students that similar, different from American students?
1: Um, One thing I think that... I found universal is that teaching college students after COVID, after everybody's been online, it's um, the whole attendance thing has been a little difficult. So like attendance has been iffy actually in both places. I taught both in Texas and New York um, also iffy here again, I think it's tricky because it's like, are they not feeling well? I think that also the students were getting, now that our undergrads um, had the pandemic in high school. And so little things like, hey, you should show up to class. You should show up in time. You should let your professor know what's going on. You can't just like not show up to a gig. Like, I feel like there are little like, what would we, what we assumed is like day-to-day common sense things. They're not registering. So that is something that I've noticed with the Egyptian students. The students I've had here are very nice. Actually, there are lots of similarities with the students I've had in the Bronx where it's like I don't teach at a conservatory and where I teach is not the Cairo conservatory. So very similar things. If there are any differences, yeah, the language barrier, (laughs) like I had to have somebody to translate. Um, But again, the whole um, they only have their classes once a week. Compared to two to three times a week in the United States, I am um, definitely convinced that the u s has the best education system in the world actually, um, especially at the graduate level so um those are some differences, but still the same age group honestly they are they are college kids they they do very similar things. I would say here they have more names in common. So like, I think there's a saying in Egypt where it's like, you're like every household has like a Muhammad, Ahmed and Mahmoud, just like they have salt and pepper in their house. So like I had a composition seminar, which was really fun. I was like, what's your name? And I think all three of the Muhammads decided to stand next to each other. I'm like, fine. You do this <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> it's fine. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, the the pandemic, at, like afterwards in the pandemic, I, I that is that is universal.
0: This reminds me of the um, of the the discussions my wife and I have, who she's also a university professor. When we'd be like, okay, I have a, a Kaylee, a Kylie, a Caitlin, um, a Keely, mm-hmm. like if those kinds of, where you're like, I'm gonna blow this a lot.
1: Yeah. And they're like all white girls and here, like they're all, they're all, yes. And here (laughs) they're all Egyptian. Like, I think I I had, I had one student who is, um, part Sudanese, part Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one other student who is like half Egyptian, half or quarter Caribbean, but also, so it's Canadian, like French Canadian. Yeah. It was like, yeah. (laughs) You can't tell white girls apart. I'm saying this as a half white girl. Like you can't. <laughs> and, and they're all blonde haired, and their names are with the K. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: it's great. <laughs> yeah, it is. it is. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the what's going on, kind of compositionally, because you had a major announcement last month, I believe.
1: My Opera America grant. Yay.
0: Yeah. What? So what? What's What's the plan for that?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, I got an Opera America grant, uh, the Discovery grant for 2023. Was not expecting to get it. i have been rejected before. Um, And in fact, that's the reason why I'm going to the Opera America conference is because they're like, we're going to comp your uh, registration. I'm like, that's cool. They're like, we're going to comp your hotel. I'm like, okay. And they're like, we will pay up to $400 for your travel. And I was actually able to get a good round trip flight to pittsburgh so i'm going to that but um i asked a grant to do a libretto reading for an opera that me and haiting chin are going to work on about the first all-women spacewalk and we're really excited about this and so um we hope to have the libretto reading um in the fall in new york city uh because we both live there now and uh, we're, we're aiming for um late October, early November. I should have reserved a place at the Opera America building. It's okay. It'll get done. It's fine. We're going to tell the story of the first ever all-women spacewalk with uh, Jessica Meir and uh, Christina Koch. Actually, uh, uh, Jessica Meir was in the uh, New York Times crossword today. So, spoiler alert. um, (laughs) If if there is an astronaut with um, the first name Jessica... That that's who it is for letters. Okay. You know, we're gonna tell it in five vignettes. Basically, the um, the spacewalk, like it's on YouTube and and Hai Ting, who is a brilliant um, mezzo soprano. She's libretticized stuff before. She was also in the um, Einstein on the Beach, like the traveling cast for that. Um, and she's also created her own um, kind of like love letter to to space. So she's like produced her own stuff and she wore a hoop skirt with the planets. Like, I love her. I'm really excited. to get to collaborate with her again. Um, and I think we might actually meet in person in Pittsburgh. I think like I have to like double check if she's going or not. I'm really excited about this. Now that I have a grant to do the libretto reading, it is my nice... You know, tap tap, tap in the ass to like actually get this going. Um, mm-hmm. I have been toying with doing it. It's a matter of finding space for it because people want me to write wind ensemble music or like some other things. and i and I realize if I really want to make this happen, I really need to make space for it. and so i'm I'm really excited. This is like my next big project after. August 1st, when I finish my other two. And I'm just going to focus on that. Hopefully also during the libretto reading, we'll have a preview of a couple of arias. So I'm really excited
0: about it. Have you written an opera before?
1: I have. I've actually written a couple of uh, micro operas. Well, my first attempt at an opera was actually as an undergrad. It was an opera called Fish. I only wrote one scene of it. um, And the story is that There is a college student. She just like had a breakup, was feeling kind of depressed, kind of low. Um, And she decided to go to the pet store and she found a fish that was very much on sale. And she's like, why not? I'll just buy this fish and take it home and put it in the bathtub where I can find like a tank for it. Um, The fish happens to look like a naked man. So uh, it looks like there's a naked man in the bathtub and one by one, like her college roommates find out and react to the fish. Um, So yeah, that was my first attempt at an opera. I felt like I was a little over my head, Good thing, like Harkey was like, yeah, I, it might be a stretch for you, but you know you will grow from this. And so that was my first attempt at an opera, um,
0: and that's uh, just a one act. That sounds uh, like a that sounds like a that's a that's a Meyer beer if I've ever heard one.
1: Yes, um, it is multiple acts, but I never proceeded to um finish it and my librettist for that opera Um, we didn't have an exit strategy there were like four different endings it was like it was a bit much but you know it was like our first attempts at an opera and you know I did it like it was like the first scene of where they discover the fish in the bathtub and she's like well I bought it home I think it was like on sale or free and you know, there was like a very Christian roommate, and there was like a very like it was just for lack of a better word, sultry roommate. It was just like, is an anatomically correct man that was a fish. That was my yeah. surreal Meyerbeer opera yes. um, that I started, um, and then later on, I participated in the Atlanta Opera 24-hour opera. Project is supposed to be like a uh, kind of like an Iron Chef type of thing where they like matched you with the librettist and you got a prop and uh, then you wrote an opera in 12 hours. And then the production team did the other 12 hours to do that. And so I remember I got a block of cheese and my librettist, uh, Vinnie Milley, got a rolling pin. And I was like, well, I've been watching a lot of Food Network lately. I suppose like. This is happening, and she's like, well, "Let's look at some other things." And we saw an angel harp, and she's like, "Maybe, maybe somebody will die in the opera." the The day we had to get to work was the same day that Paula Dean announced she had type two diabetes, and I said <laughs> Paula Dean will die. So the opera is called Krispy Kremes and Butter Queens. Basically, she's making her lady's brunch burger, which is like the, the burger and the cheese and the bacon and the Krispy Kreme burger or Krispy Kreme donuts while filming. And she she like chokes on her own contraption and dies and she can't get into heaven because her foods are too sinful. But then she convinced the angels to taste butter and she takes their wings and that's the end of the opera. It was actually highly successful. It won the audience <laughs> award. Um I can't believe, I, I think I finally got comedy and humor in the 12 hours. Like, so I was like, it's actually funny. haha. ha. Um, and I almost lamented the fact that my most successful piece was something that I wrote in 12 hours overnight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have that. I also wrote a miniature opera about the housing bubble. Um, and it hasn't been performed since I produced it with my own opera company. Um, I think it's because I decided to, to have it with two tenors and two basses and like tenors are like the unicorns of the opera world. <laughs> They're like really hard to find uh, or you have to pay them more or both, you know, mm-hmm. why not both? So yes, I have a couple couple of operas under my belt. I wrote kind of like a um, oratorio slash song cycle about the arrest and trial of Pussy Riot that uh, Quince ensemble recorded and performed. So um, okay. I think I'm good. I, you know, I had something to submit for my proposal and they liked my music at Opera America, which I'm like deeply thankful about. So, um, here we go. I'm going to finish it. (laughs) Right. You know, and it's not going to be micro it's, you know, the, the original spacewalk is like seven hours long. It's not going to be a seven hour opera. I promise, but Mm.
0: it'll be 11. It'll be fine.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) 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 They can only be out in space. On the, like outside the International Space Station for so long, while like going at so many miles an hour and over the planet in rotation.
0: (laughs) That that sounds amazing. The movie The Shape of Water came out where you were like, that was our idea. We had this.
1: There was a part of me there I was like, hmm, hmm, well, that's okay. That's okay.
0: We're good. (laughs) <laughs> that's where I was like, wait, that's The Shape of Water. That's that's that whole movie, basically. You just, you just, you had created and you didn't know.
1: True. It was, I was, I was 20 years ahead of it, but that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that, that's amazing. On the composition side, a uh, lot, a number of things I, I want to ask about. One of them is, you know, because you said that you've been writing a lot of stuff for Winansabo recently, as you're as has been the kind of the, the the main vehicle i guess is it do, when you get commissioned or when people ask to commission you for things do you have a process of thinking i'm interested in writing more things like this or I, i'm just curious about how you what's the push and pull between accepting a commission versus what you may may be more interested in doing
1: well, first of all, like when, I've always wanted to write for wind ensemble for like a while. Like I would definitely say definitely in graduate school. I also like went to every single wind band performance at USC. Funny story. I do have a tiny, tiny microscopic band background. That is I played flute in middle school band. Um, I did one year of high school flute So I did one semester of marching band and like concert band, whatnot. Um, And then I like, then I focused on piano and then composition, but went to all these band concerts. I always try to find something that the commissioning party, um, like some kind of link. And so that's kind of how I do my research with that. Um It doesn't always work out sometimes it's really hard, um but as far as I'm concerned, every time like I have a commission, um I know that my performers are my first audience and i I always think about my audience when I write um and I also want something that's true to me. A couple of examples of where I like had the ensemble in mind. I would say the first thing is like u t Austin. Um, didn't think I'd be writing about their first campus shooting, but, um, it was kind of in the news because the 50th anniversary of that was happening. And also it was the same time that they decided to have open carry on campus. And that was like a huge irony for me. Um, I was certainly a professor at that time, like having all the feelings. Um, and originally this piece was supposed to be in honor of Jerry Junkin, uh, Kappa Kappa Psi wanted, they're like. Write a piece in honor hear Jerry Junkin, and I was like, "Well, so this is what I'm thinking. Is it okay?" And I, I felt like I had to have clearance for that. My piece, Ash, is it Pacific University in Fresno, Fresno Uni? I think it's Pacific University in Fresno. I'm so sorry. I'm like blanking okay. on the name. I do know it's Fresno. I'm not from Fresno. I'm I'm from Southern California, but I was thinking about the forest fires and turned out that Fresno is like ash tree. And I thought that was appropriate. Um, That was my first major consortium. So I was like, well, I know that there are other schools involved. However, they're the lead consortium on this. We'll make it related. Um, And then sometimes I can't really find a connection. So I had a commission by Michigan State I was blanking. I was like, and I've like been to the campus before and I like, I know them and I have, have former students who are there now. And, um, you know, they're all about like the Spartan and go green. I just couldn't think of anything, but you know, we were post pandemic. And then I was thinking like, Oh, I was thinking a lot about isolation. Um, a lot of space things were happening lately. Um, any excuse to listen to David Bowie or any like the 2001 space odyssey soundtrack. So like a whole bunch of Liggety, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, a whole bunch of organ music, actually. Um, and I kind of incorporated it. It's where I was like, yes, Michigan State's commissioning me. I can't really find a tie, but this is something I'm dealing with right now. So um, I do try to adjust the commission. It's it's always going to be about me. It's always going to be about how it relates to me, just because like, I got to get ideas out as... A professor, you know, he'll have so much time and so much like mental energy to think about it. But also, I I really do keep the performers in mind, and so that also influences like ability level, but also what their strengths are as an ensemble, etc. So that's kind of how I make it work.
0: When there, when you get contacted to do this, there's a lot. I assume there's a lot of dialogue about length, t- like all the things that you so that you have the parameters completely set up before you even write a note.
1: Absolutely. There are, uh, the parameters are so helpful. It's like, I need to know how big the canvas is, you know, like you know, I, my canvas is time. So it gives me a parameter, um, that instrumentation sometimes, I mean, for wind ensemble, uh, I've been told standard instrumentation. I'm like, cool. Um, and then I've added electronics that kind of got me in trouble once, but that's, that's a whole other thing. But I f- my electronics are press and play. I know conductors have a lot on their plate. Trust me, I make it as simple as possible, as as fail-proof as possible, because there's just a lot of moving parts. Yes, for those parameters. Sometimes I get a grade level. Uh, Sometimes I kind of understand what's happening. Uh, For me personally, what's better than a grade level is pieces that work in the repertoire with the uh, solo saxophone piece. I was like, just give me some pieces to work with. And for that, that's not really ability level. That's more of like, maybe write about glissandos. I'm like, okay. I was like, give me some pieces. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, kind of gives me an idea of what to work with.
0: I know that you were saying that uh, this time of year where the teaching is much less or the semester's end ended, that's like, you know, you tend to have more time to kind of get the get the composing thing going for, you know, in a major sense, how do you work in during the semester when you do have to compose? How do you, how does, how do you fit that in? Are you like morning, is it a tip time of day and it's blocked off and everything is is shut off or how, how does that work for you?
1: So I do a ton of pre-compositional work before I get going, a ton, a ton, a ton. So it's like my research. Um, So the piece, uh, the brass quintet, Texas Tech, the wind ensemble one. I've been talking to Sarah McCoy for years about writing a piece about like Texas and West Texas. And that kind of fits into my wheelhouse because I'm definitely influenced by my environment surroundings. So maybe there'll be in the future something about Egypt. We'll see how that goes. Um, I'm actually recording a lot of things. So um, I'm not supposed to do research here. Don't tell the Egyptian government. I think they're fine. I think we're good. (laughs) My visa says uh, (laughs) I'm a visitor only. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I've been thinking about that for years, and then the pandemic happened. And then so I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, While teaching, I was like, well, what is Texas? What does it mean to be the West? What is the mythology of the West? What's my impression of it? And what am I listening to? Um, Am I listening to like a whole bunch of like Texan folk songs? Am I looking up like lyrics and books? Am I listening to the mariachi or the Tejano on the radio? You know, just thinking through some things. I also think a lot about form and what's going to happen with the form. For example, with the opera, have I thought about a melody yet? No. Have I thought about the instrumentation? Kind of. I know that Jessica Muir actually uh, was a band kid, so if you want to um, look up Jessica Meir flute slash piccolo, she plays a Star Wars theme on the piccolo. And so that might go, like, not piccolo, maybe flute, we'll see. Yeah, but yeah. I definitely know it's in five vignettes. Um, I am, like, a two hours into the spacewalk. The last hour was, like, attaching the foothold so they don't fly off. That that was a lot. I might just, like, read the, the, the YouTube transcript, but, you know, I'll do it for the record, like. Yeah, yeah. I will watch it. If my librettist is going to be watching it, like that's only fair. I think a lot, a lot about the form, a lot and a lot about what music I'm going to listen to. And I create actually a Spotify playlist. I started doing this because people were like, what inspired you? And then like three years later, I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I forgot. I'm kind of like, I think composers, once they're like done with the piece, like they might do some tiny edits, but we're kind of like, we kind of yeah. have to keep thinking forward yeah. because you know time is our medium and time is a commodity, and we we only have so much time in the day. so I think a lot about my pieces. the transient canvas piece I've been thinking about this piece for years um, I did work with them on a workshop um I've decided to use sound clips. Uh, because, well, first of all, it's not just a piece for bass clarinet and five octave marimba, but also electronics. And I actually went to Vietnam, um, I want to say 2014, 2015, and I have sounds from Vietnam. And I thought that'd be kind of a cool mashup. Um, So I've been thinking about which recordings I'm going to be using. That's going to be in like separate movements, I think. Press and play is what I'm going to do. I think about those things. And then when summer comes in, it's like, then it's the actual like scribbling and bibbling, although I can't do it as fast as Mozart, but you know, where I, I think I'm like, that's when I sit in front of a piano. That's when I start sketching some things. That's when I go to the computer, mm-hmm. like actually seeing if my form will work. But um, I say in the meantime, it's definitely in the back burner, simmering. I have a couple of pots going there. Mm-hmm. We'll see what we can do.
0: When you say you, you, are, are kind of doing the pre-work, is that only music or are you doing, are you reading books Are you, are you taking in all other art to kind of help get you there?
1: It depends on the project. So my piece questions to heaven for Michigan state. Yeah, I did do musical soundtracks, but 2001 is space odyssey. Like, I mean, I watched the film before. Well, I've watched most of it. It's a long film. Yes. this is really terrible my my spouse is a art historian and did minor in film and he's like that film is beautiful and i'm like i just teach my electronic kids like this is where bicycle built for two shows up (laughs) and that was because max matthews and friends did a demo at bell labs um no but but seriously like for that one it was kind of mostly music for the Texas piece, I did find a whole bunch of like um lyrics. um that was kind of fun. um for the u uh, t. Austin piece, there was a documentary called Tower that was released one or two years beforehand. It. Yeah, it's
0: incredible Oh,
1: it's incredible. yeah, listen to the um the, the 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 their local NPR documentary about this. um u t. Austin has a living history like uh, website about that event. Actually, the piece that I wrote for uh, Emily Salgado, that um, mm-hmm. the, the solo percussionist piece. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: we had we had of... a percussionist did that here.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like Olivia Sletten. Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm really sorry. I just. Yeah. Okay. I also. I'm like obsessed with the bass drum and any I, like low membranophone like I, I, I know, we talked I'm, about this right here. So, I'm so obsessed and I will never it will never ever get old for me. <laughs> yes, watching a lot of Evelyn Glennie is musical. Um yes, um listening to um I should, My spouse was like, "You need to listen to some Art Tatum." And I did and that was like fantastic. Um and then I watched a lot of uh, uh Sangamu dances but again like i didn't realize this dance like as a child i'm like that's a lot of drumming um but also doing some research so it, it just depends on the project of what what it is um i have to admit that also with questions to heaven um, to get the idea of isolation in space, uh, Mark uh, Kelly, the, the retired astronaut, was like, "I know about how to live in isolation." I'm like, "Yeah, I do." So I was just like reading about that. I actually bought his autobiography. I didn't read it though, but it's it's on the list, and I feel like might be relevant for my opera project. So it just it really depends on the project. It it just depends on what it's about. And then I'll do research and go down my rabbit hole and, and figure that, that stuff out.
0: All right. So I want to ask you about working with comp students. Now, um, if you think about kind of how you were a student with, with other uh, professors, what, what do you see as kind of the role of the composition professor in working with comp students?
1: My job as a professor is to get my students to write their best music. So um, I don't believe in having them write in a certain style. I think that's pedagogically very antiquated. I don't think anybody does that um, in the States anymore. You know, I, I feel like if you're going to take counterpoint class, that's your composition class, like write like Palestrina, write like Bach. Cool and i feel like it depends on how young the student is i feel like that they they need a little bit more tools and exercises and one of the things i teach them is form um i look back when i was a student and i think they well they they taught me motive they taught me like taking a little you know, little motive, Mm -hmm. doing all the composer games with it, like forwards, backwards, upside down, octave displacement, all of that. Putting in a piece, making it motivically cohesive, the whole like idea of a cyclical uh, composition, that's fine. Uh, But form is also important. And I got used to get stuck a lot, like writer's block was really terrible. And I realized in hindsight, that's because I was like through composing a lot. Like, again, you take a motive, (laughs) that's cool. But how do you do big blocks? and then what are you trying to say through your music? So, um, as an undergrad, if there was an exercise that kind of told me what so variations were my jam, like I can do variations, no problem. And that's like a good exercise that's strictly um, musical like musical in its most abstract form the idea of, of taking a concept or making a form out of it that was I didn't realize that was okay um I know that when I started as an undergrad I wanted to be a film composer one because okay the Star Wars movies are coming back into the theater and I was I really liked the relation of like John Williams and Steven Spielberg and I was and or jo- you know George Lucas and I was like oh he gets to do whatever um, and there was a structure and I was like, I don't have my own original ideas and I'll just have a story to tell. I learned that uh, if you're a film composer, y- you won't have a director like that. They will have an idea. If they could write the music themselves, they will do it. Um, and so that's why I switched over. But it was really hard for me to come up with a form myself that wasn't like a stereotypical like. Sonata form or variation and writing something that was solely like music by itself. And I realized a lot of music is not that way. A lot of music is emotion. A lot of music has some kind of metaphor or some like some kind of narrative. And I just didn't know how to structure the narrative. And so one thing I teach my students is, okay, what do you want to do in this piece? I'm going to give you exercises at first. And then this is your structure. And then I'm all about the structure in so much that one of my former students (laughs) told me, he's like, I thought of something funny. The world is ending and an asteroid's coming and you just calmly go outside. You listen and you go, what form is that? I said, good job, kid. Good job. So I guess I really stress that, but at the same time, I know for me personally, it got me out of being stuck. I don't get stuck anymore. I mean, okay. Occasionally I get stuck when I'm like, Oh, that was supposed to last longer in my plan. That's not, that's not lasting as long. Well, got to figure something out, but that happens. But at least I know where I'm going. I have an idea of where it's headed. So that's good. And the last thing I would say, if they're younger, I feel like it's my job to boost their confidence because that's one thing I wish I had more of and they need confidence to fail and make mistakes. And it's okay to make mistakes and you got to learn from that. And when you have such a critical editor in your head, that's like, that sucks. And then I don't get to see it. I mean, I don't know if it sucks. Like I tell them, it's like, it may suck. I'll tell you, but it might be workable it's developing that relationship and, and getting them to, to try. So um, I wish I had more confidence when I was younger. Um, so I hope to instill that in my students that it's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And I, I hadn't thought about the kind of the, the writing and the style of as a, a detriment. You said antiquated. It is
1: um, antiquated. Yes. yes. Okay, the 1960s had this fetishization of uh, like the scientific process and everything. That's yeah. when you start having official like, sorry guys, history listen, start having like um, music departments. And so you had to like prove that music departments had to exist. And then that was also the high modernist time in America, 12 tone music, having to write in that style, focusing yeah. more on the process and the mathematics.
0: That's how you get all those dudes. (laughs) Like, No, that's exactly it. So so like, and I
1: actually, yeah, but I actually, I actually really love Babbitt. I really do. And I really like Webern, but there is like this whole generation of composers who like had to write into that style. And then there were times where I was like why didn't a composer make it? And I think I kind of got an ink of that when I went to my uh, piano teacher's uh, recital at USC. I studied with Dr. Stuart Gordon. He may or may not still be there. He was pretty old when I was there, um, but he did like the WC Preludes and some kind of programming. And then as an encore, he do pay and he played uh, uh, music from a musical that he wrote. And I realized he wanted to write musicals and, but that wasn't accepted as, you, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. it was yep. that generation. And I was like, you're in a musical. Okay. And uh, you know, I, I, my guess is like, if Milton Babbitt was his teacher, you know, like I think uh, if I understand correctly, Milton Babbitt was like Stephen Sondheim's teacher, like, you know, you yes. needed to have, and actually I personally think if you listen to Milton Babbitt's music, like he had the big band in his ear. Like I I can't, I'm not a Milton Babbitt scholar. I just feel it. You can tell he loved that music, but there are a lot of people who just didn't want to write in that style. So what do you do? Like you don't get your, you don't get your degrees in composition because that would suck That'd be terrible, you know? So um, anyways, back to the whole like stylistic thing. One of the things I had to do for my comprehensive exam was um, I was told two weeks before my exam that I had to finish a piece in the style of late Debussy. This is definitely a hold off from like um, my former professor Joel Hoffman went to Juilliard. And I feel like that was very much like a European thing that was like held onto it. Um, for the record, the, uh, the, the doctoral exams at CCM, they no longer have composers do that. It, it was just like a one last hold, hold onto like the, from, from decades before. So it's fascinating. And I know in Europe, I think they still kind of do it. I'm not an expert in Europe. It's fascinating. I think about this all the time because I want to be a better professor. I also want more people to study composition and what is their gateway into it. And they don't have to major in it. Like I, I think that everybody should learn how to write music so you know how to build an engine mm-hmm. or like knit that ugly sweater so you can, you know, so you know how things work and then you can be a better performer and vice versa. So that's where I stand.
0: That's great. I I, I hadn't thought of that as an antiquated concept, but I, I completely see your point. And that makes, and, and when the ways you, you maybe think about it's because you said, talk about theme and variations and like the first thought that may come into your head is like, Oh yeah. Like the, like, uh, Haydn used to, like, you know, it's classical era, you know, mm-hmm. standard play, but it's like, no, no, it's not. It's everyone has used theme and variations. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's yes. in West African music. It's, it's in everything.
1: It is, it is classic and it works and it is in everything. And so yeah. should we learn? Yeah because you'll either play it or you're going to write it or you see it in all different forms, actually, you know, artwork. Yeah. Different things. So.
0: All right. Well, Jen, let's back up. So you said you grew up in Southern California. Yes. Did you have family members in the arts?
1: No, (laughs) I did not. Uh, My parents are muggles. Um, That being said, uh, my mom is Korean and If you're Korean by descent, you are learning the piano or violin or both. I had that opportunity when I was six years old. I started the piano. And then later, when I was six years old, like maybe six and a half, I don't know, uh, started playing violin. And then I realized I had to practice for both instruments. And I said, peace out. We're good. Um, And I joke, I'm only half Korean. So I only learned piano. Um, (laughs) So that's my musical background. (laughs) I didn't want to practice for two instruments. Also, like, like, again, I was six. And I was like, what do you mean you have to tune your violin every time? That's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Like, you can't just press a note and then you hear the note. What do you mean? Like, this sounds terrible. (laughs) going? terrible it does it's so like you know and and it was like suzuki method i didn't want to be like yeah (laughs) etc dumb (laughs) i look back i think i was a handful i was a little precocious Stupid! Like I was like that. That is dumb. Is a six year old dumb? <laughs> I want an instrument. You only want to tune twice a year. There it and is. And I don't tune it. You
0: know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, there. That's amazing. Is. How far along? You 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 actually go to college. Doing studying piano first, or you go to college? I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you go to college doing composition as well.
1: I go to college doing only composition. I did audition as piano performance as backup. Okay. Um, Got in, but I was like definitely a composer. I definitely did not have the discipline to practice piano as a piano performance major. I also deeply hated memorizing music. Mm. Like it's just a fear stupid list ruined it for all of us. <laughs> he Dead. memorized all that music. Yeah. Um, I also understand I'm speaking to a percussionist, so thank you. You have you just have to yeah. you have to read different types of scores and, and memorize yeah. it's what it is. Um, no, um, I re- actually remember my piano teacher in high school where he was like, What do you want to do? And I'm like crying, and I was like, <laughs> I want to be a composer. He's like, Oh, I'm wasting my time. 'Cause you're really good at piano, you're obviously sight reading, you're obviously practicing. <laughs> I did take piano lessons as a requirement at USC, you know, for piano. I didn't take piano class, piano lessons and and also all my all my composer colleagues when we had to do our exercise of like take a motive and put it into a solo instrument plus piano, like I played all their pieces cause like, you know, we're totally social beings and got to meet all the pianists who would play new music. No. Um, and so I played, so I was like, I, I played new music. Like I was really good at it. Um, mm-hmm. so, but I was just composition major, never yeah. double majored. I'm in awe of my students who double major and anything yeah. I'm just like ding. So, um, so yeah, I went to college as just a composer.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So how far along on the piano track did you get in terms of difficulty level or like pieces that you were playing towards the end?
1: I was playing some standard rap for my audition. Um, I mean, I played a Scarlatti because Bach is just hard, but like I played well, tempered Clavier, um, definitely had a Beethoven sonatas. Um, I forget which one I know in college I did the very first one or sorry, in, uh, my master's degree, I was too lazy to memorize a piece because the requirement for conductors and composers is to memorize something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nope. So I took piano lessons and the TA is like, seriously, pass out of this. This, please. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, like, no, I, w- I, I was I was, good enough. Piano teacher wanted me to play the G major uh, Ravel Piano Concerto, which is an amazing Ooh. piece. And then it got hard and then I quit it. And then he started me on Prokofiev. So no, I was... I was good enough. Definitely played uh, 20th century. So, like every like the Gina Stara um oh, yeah. so something from 1960s. Uh, barber, I, I played the Barber Excursions. Um, seven against eight is a bitch for mm. that little. I just like fudged it. Um, <laughs> you no, know, I was playing some some I'm trying You're, to think of.
0: You just do a lot of rubato in the seven. seven or years. just,
1: like, I, I think I, like, mumbled it. Oh, yeah, I was playing some, like, Chopin etudes. Yeah. So, like...
0: Yeah, high-level stuff. Yeah.
1: Did I play them cleanly? Eh. But, no, I, I was good. I was Who's good. to I say I have in chops. the end? I mean, I just... But I, I don't think I have, like, the performer. Like, I, I, I understood new music really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, now when I play piano, um, like, I can actually hear the orchestration. But now as a composer, I definitely am more of a composer when I play piano because, like, I'm hearing the different lines mm-hmm. and hearing the orchestration um, because I can, I can separate, like, a pianist would think like this a composer I was like oh well, we're treating it like a like the percussion the articulation in this so I'm definitely more of a composer now but yeah I had a strong piano background very strong
0: gotcha now aside from doing all of that music what other music were you listening to when you were growing up
1: really got into jazz more of like uh, I would say Miles Davis Coltrane I had the kind of blue album. I was listening to a lot of uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, Also um, listened to like, I think it was called the BMI. you remember those CD collections where it's like, oh, I'll just pay 99 cents and get a Mm -hmm. ton of CDs. So like got a lot of Copeland Stravinsky. Yeah. The orchestration teacher also conducting teacher at the orange county school of the arts christopher russell um introduced me to new music so i didn't know that there was a john adams and then a john luther adams um and so i went uh, i remember um he had me play this kurtog piece because uh, like i'd have to be in percussion and so i got to play air horn <laughs> <Nice. laughs> it's <was> awesome <laughs> um so i would say definitely a little bit of a mix plus like stuff that was on the you know pop sugar pop music that was on like the late Um, nineties. Some things that I think that surfaced into my music um, was that I listened to a lot of beach boys growing up. And so I think that Brian Wilson. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Oh, so good.
1: That shit is good. It's so good. It's so good. And like, I think of the harmonies and that's definitely influenced my music. Oh man, it's gonna it's gonna be great. Um, and fun fact, my first introduction to uh, to Bach, um, and also it was the the Wendy Carlos switched on Bach album. So like that is near and dear to my heart, mm. and I have the I have the record that my dad had. Um, so also when I heard Yezu Joy of Man's Acoustically, I was yeah. like, what is this? It sounds familiar. My dad's like, that's Bach. I'm like, it is? And he's like, yeah, actually, he didn't write for the synthesizer. He wrote for acoustic instruments, to which I said, that's dumb. (laughs) It sounds way cooler. (laughs) Why would Bach leave out the
0: synthesizer? It was just unbelievable.
1: I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. you get a lot more color you know like. yeah. <laughs>
0: it just seems like a real oversight is all we're saying
1: i have just and i think with wendy carlos's version she had it like at a clip dee da dee like very like light and jig like and i think the, yeah. the recording we're hearing was a little slower mm-hmm. and i was like dumb <laughs> 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 I love Bach, though yeah. I really do. It's okay. acoustic instruments are fine. It's
0: yeah. fine. Well, I'm I'm thrilled. You said the the Beach Boys. I we play I, when I teach uh, jazz, pop, and rock. I always play. I play a few of their tunes, but the one I my, my maybe my favorite is Surfer Girl, and it's mm-hmm. partially because it seems like it's an easy song. Like you'll, so, like oh, it seems like super, and the harmonies are so hard, so hard.
1: So hard, so hard. Um, <laughs> but awesome. Like yes. I'm still actually like, I read it. Like the, the, um, the song, wouldn't it be nice when we were older? Does this weird key change, which yes. I should look it up. And I think I did explain it to my, my students at Texas tech, but they had me teaching an ADM class that time. So I don't know what I taught. I also know I had a hard time counting to 12, which is problematic. <laughs> Sometimes like I started Saying to myself, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 8, 9 like just so yeah, I can yeah. get it right. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but no, I mean, it is it's deceptively easy. It's it is difficult and it's just and it's so locked in. And yes. yeah, then I heard like some recordings of the four freshmen that Brian Wilson was influenced by, and he just took it up a notch and just yes. made it of the time and like pet shop sounds, like that pet album sounds, yeah. is just so something else yeah. and yeah. uh oh man i can wax poetic about the beach boys and brian wilson yeah yeah definitely such
0: well, and, good stuff and not only he did that all, a little bit with um, chuck berry's music um mm-hmm. with uh i forget the the this tune that's basically Cal, um surfing usa is basically like I think sweet little 16 or something like that.
1: Oh, that just, just what I didn't revved know, up. But
0: wouldn't surprise a level. Me. Yeah. No,
1: it is revved up. Yeah. And yeah, once you get past like the early stuff and the lyrics, which, you know, bless their heart. But it was like really fun. Like I yeah. have actually childhood memories of like the 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 sly guitar, surfer music, mm-hmm. listening to that specifically when we were actually going to Bolsa Chica Beach. Like it was just a fun time. Yeah. And just the harmonies were so influential. And I realized, like, oh. Yeah, like also not like I shouldn't be embarrassed by listening to the Beach Boys, but like there's some really good stuff in there. And it's been like I I see them my music now and it's wild, but I'm deeply thankful for it. Like that is I'm proud of that.
0: Yeah, it's there's a there's a lot of incredible stuff. I will say side note for them that, you know, it's a I did see them in concert. And this was like five, six, seven years ago. I can't remember. They came to Mizzou and Mm. it is a little weird. To have them sing like "Be True to Your School" in their seventies, I will say okay, that. Okay.
1: In question, was it yeah. with or without Brian Wilson?
0: I think it was without.
1: Yeah that that's a that's a trope, but also yes. yeah, be cool to your school. Yeah,
0: yeah. There, there's definitely some songs that you're like, should you all be singing this in 20 you know 16 or whatever it was? Yeah.
1: Probably not. Yeah. Um, anyway. Oh well. <laughs> they did. They did sing it. And that that yeah. is theirs. So yes,
0: yeah. So aside from and aside from the music activities, did you do anything else that filled out your your life growing up? Were you in sports or student government or church related activities? Anything else that was? Um, out?
1: I would say that very. So I'd say middle school is more of that time. Middle school, I was actually I played volleyball. Mm-hmm. Actually. I uh, became a Dodgers fan when I was 16. I went to my first Dodger game in 1997 and mm. I've been definitely a Dodger fan ever since. I love baseball. I actually did work at Dodger stadium one year when I was in high school. I had to explain to my students in the Bronx that, hi, I'm Dr. Jennifer Jolly. I'm from LA. I'm a Dodger fan because I was going to a Mets game when the Dodgers were in town. I said, Hey, I'll respond to your email later. I'm, I'm getting on the train and going to Mets game. And one student was like, why are you rooting for the Mets? I said, Oh, you weren't here the first day of school. (laughs) Hi, I'm Dr. Jolly. I'm a Dodger fan, but I do live close to Yankee stadium. So yeah. I um, <laughs> yes.
0: you're like I get your confusion about everything. No, that and on. legit,
1: like I mean, my students are Yankees fans. That's yes. something that I've just had to accept. That's just yeah. I'm I'm not rooting for the Yankees.
0: I know you're never gonna root for the I'm Yankees. Never, Definitely not gonna, as a Dodger fan. I'm never goes rooting too, for it's the too deep. <laughs> it's
1: it's not happening yes. <laughs> ever. Yeah. Um, I just want them to know culturally where I come from and that we celebrate diversity and (laughs) at least they're not giants fans. Like, like, (laughs) and even then again, as an educator, like we all make the world go round. Um, If they're an Astros fan, we're going to have to talk, but but, um, (laughs) yeah. 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 So those, those are like my hobbies growing up and some of them I, I definitely still have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You going to USC, did you, was, was this a decision to just, you wanted to stay local or you had a connection to the school already since you were in the area?
1: Um, I'd say a few connections and that I think like all of the, all of my music teachers or most of them were like USC grads. My high school piano teacher was wrapping up his DMA. So I actually went to his DMA, like one of his DMA piano recitals. I also know that they had a film scoring emphasis program. So if I actually stayed in it probably could have had something recorded at Sony studios or paramount. Mm -hmm. Oops. But I switched my bad. Oh, well. Um, But I'd say the film scoring emphasis was the main part of it. And I knew that like, if you're going to go into film, it's either New York or Los Angeles. And I didn't feel like going too far away, like to New York city also, like my, it, it was interesting with like a generation where like my, like Californians are are are. Although I wouldn't say they're weird. We're just like, why would you move away from California? Like, I think still to this day, my family is like, why why did you decide to move away from California? I was like, well, I was in my early twenties. I did move to Vermont. Cool, but also like jobs. Like as an academic, you kind of have to like take the job. Yeah. Where where it was, you know, shrug. But I'm like the only one in my family who's done it because like my grandparents went out to California. They were like, why would you leave? My mom is from South Korea. She immigrated to California. And she's like, wait, why are, what? Um, and then my dad was a first gen student and his generation was like, you kind of applied to schools. You knew you were going to go in, get into. And so he just went to Cal state Long Beach. And so like when I started getting packets from like Oberlin, cause I was like, Oh, I hear that's a good music school. And my mom was like, what? Or like, I was like, rice. Sure. Why not? Like, indiana and they're like it freaked out my parents a little bit i've always wanted to go to usc as as a high schooler it's just better that way
0: and i know that you didn't stay in the the film side of it but is that is that really connected with the film because the that's a major film school too or more so even right
1: uh yes actually um huge 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 actually, since I graduated, they got rid of the Arnold Schoenberg Institute building. That's a whole thing. Um, And we joked and we said they needed to make more room for the Ewoks because George Lucas, like they had this like very ersatz 1920s lot. Like it's a huge, huge, huge film school. Um, And I have some friends who are basically, they're film composers because they met people it's it's very huge their film scoring emphasis is more toward their screen scoring program so it's now screen scoring because video game scoring is a thing as I know because like I actually could have my first video game soundtrack so I think it's more for that and yes they have the connections because of the film school I don't know if they do like actual collaboration I mean collaborations do happen because I've I've had you know friends who did the film score a film scoring emphasis now screen scoring emphasis um but that uh screen scoring program is more of like a what do you call it? it's not a postdoc it's like a associate's degree it's an associate's degree like you do it you have to have your um undergrad first so um but i think it's all about connections there i'm sure
0: does the the undergrad there have some type of finish is there, do you have like a final recital? That's all your music. What, what it's, how does that?
1: Yes, there's absolutely final recital with all of your music. Um, that's where I premiered my one scene mm-hmm. multi act, never ending, no exit strategy opera. Yeah. So I had a whole bunch of like different things um, on my recital. Yeah, actually my recital was, uh, April 19th, which was, I think it was Easter that day sorry like I remember because I was like so stressed about it but yeah so we had everybody has a senior recital there that's fine
0: what other types of pieces were on it
1: I did the poet composer class that to Kelly and David St. John the poet like co-taught I think hmm. to Kelly was uh, mirroring it after um oh gosh I am blanking on the big composer at Michigan or Professor Meredith. Um, Bolcom. So William Bolcom oh, exactly. had a class like that. And so I think he was marrying at USC. I was like the first thing. And so I decided to write a jazz tune for a poem. And uh, one of my friends was like, Did you use a Rome? Like I didn't, but my friend Bray Yarbrough sang it because, like, okay, I was in jazz choir for the first two years at USC. Like Ooh, I did nice. that. And my friend Ray and I like I still see her um on She's Married to Bear McCreary who still knows who I am. Uh, for those listening, he he may have scored some major films like Godzilla or did The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica. Um, but I'm really good friends with Rhea. She sang my piece. Um, yeah, she's the one who sings the sky boat theme and Outlander. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I did that. That was on there. And my opera. I think I was trying to compile everything. My piano variations were on there for my solo cello pieces on there.
0: Did you play the piano variations?
1: Did not. Got somebody else to do it. Nice. Bless. Um, <laughs> I played everybody else's shit, man. Like, I was at every single recital. Nice. And I remember once going like, oops, forgot to ask for a pace turner. <laughs> That's a thing. Um, gosh, that was so long. I can't remember. Oh, I had a, um, a brass quintet on there. I can't remember if my first percussion trio was on there. It had wood block. So I called it long ride in a slow machine is what I called it because nice. it had um, woodblock, which my teacher at the time thought was hilarious. <laughs> just had this constant, because it was like, I knew the piece had to be five minutes. And so I had like 60 beats a minute with woodblock mm-hmm. going the whole time.
0: You just put that, you just lay that entirely in the laid score. It out and then just yeah just throw a bunch of instruments on top of it long
1: ride in this short machine nice yeah <laughs> that's great <laughs> that was my humor then <laughs> i don't know i don't know if it changed much i think now that i'm a professor it's more dad jokey and i'm not a dad but i'm certainly a professor so here we are you know yeah
0: there it is <laughs> do you go right to a masters after that
1: no i um I was really burnt out. Uh Harkey was like, you should take some time off uh, in between uh undergrad and graduate school, which I actually recommend to all of my students. I mean, everybody's their own person. Yeah. So if they yeah. need to go afterwards, that's fine. And I get that. Um, but I I learned a lot. Um, I took four years off. I my my partner at the time and I were like, let's move to Vermont. I was like, I want to see snow. I wanna move to where Ben and Jerry's is. And uh, I was a church choir director at Waterbury Congregational Church, which is actually the home of Ben and Jerry's, by the way, fun fact. Um, and I worked retail at Aunt Taylor Loft, and I was an a, a in-house pianist for the Lake Champlain Waldorf School. And
0: yeah. What was the, wait, what's the last thing?
1: The Lake Champlain Waldorf School.
0: What is what is that?
1: Oh, it's a, it's a Waldorf school in uh, Shelburne, Vermont um so I was like their staff accompanist there um yeah I, I yeah they're very musical there and uh oh yeah and I got into the Vermont contemporary music ensemble so did some things for them and uh that's what I did for four years and then went to grad school so anytime a student is like what will I do and I'm like get a job I was like you kids have Obamacare. I didn't have Obamacare when I like, took four years off. My parents are like, What do you mean you're taking time off? My mom's like, I thought you're getting your doctorate. And I was like, I will <laughs> later. She's like, I thought and you're what? Yeah. <laughs> it was very confusing to them. Again, I was like, no one in my family left California. I get it. Like, I miss oh, yeah. California a lot. It's sure. great. Yeah. They asked me why. Yes. They're like I live far away. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I didn't go directly in because I think as a composer, I just needed time to like figure out who I was, sure. become more of a human, have my brain fully develop by the time I went back. You know, so mm-hmm. all that stuff.
0: Yeah. Did you write at all at that time, or did you just take a complete break and just and just do the th- activities you've all you just? It was
1: it, it was really hard to write. Although I did do. Um, a music program in Croatia of all places, uh, run by Joel Hoffman. And that's actually how Cincinnati got on my map because mm-hmm. like for traditional schools for grad school, it was like Indiana, Michigan. Didn't want to go to USC again. Harkey was like, if you go to USC again, like I would have a vote against you because you need to get out in the world and try things. And he's right. Actually, like, yeah. I mean, I'm a little wary of people who do all three degrees in one place just because you do need different perspectives. So, I mean, are there exceptions? Yes. One of them being my late father-in-law, he got all three of his degrees from Harvard. Okay. He's a historian. I mean, i yeah, have
0: heard, heard of that school, sure, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. It's not yeah. bad. Anyway, I'm um, trying to think of, like, where else. I was thinking about applying to Ivy Leagues. I think I did, but I realized since I had more of a conservatory background, it was, like, a little bit different. Like... Didn't exactly know what I was doing. I think I applied to Yale. Definitely got rejected from Yale. Whatever. Cincinnati wasn't on my list. So I met Joel Hoffman. I really liked his style of teaching, A uh, very philosophical. I think I have a little bit of that when I teach college students too. I did that. So I wrote something for that program. I think for clarinet and piano, we had to play our own stuff. So, you know, playing piano again learned about free improvisation so that was like my one musical thing that was like all right okay i can i can this might be a school i'm interested in i might want to stay with Joel Hoffman that's fine that's cool so um that's the one official musical thing i did while i was there
0: in vermont wait no in
1: vermont in okay, vermont okay, yeah gotcha. while i was
0: in vermont I- went to croatia yes went to europe for the first time when you get to vermont is there anything that said uh, when you first get there, you're like, oh, we're not in, we're not in L.A. Something. Um,
1: yeah. Smaller population. Definitely. Everything was so green, which I get it. Vermont, I get it. Um, but where I come from, a lot more things are brown. And uh, the humidity. I wasn't used to humidity. So I was like in L.A. I was used to like bringing a jacket for the evening. And then I was like, I don't have to put a jacket on. Okay. So those are the, those are the things I would say. Then I got introduced to seasons later. Like Mm. I arrived there like late summer. So yeah.
0: And snow, you, you got the, I hope snow happened.
1: Snow did happen. I also learned that, um, I was driving on some really worn down tires. I also learned (laughs) that snow tires were a thing. (laughs) Um, and that physics is the first rule of driving. So yes. um and I think I had the the idea of snow uh, cuz like I think your perception of snow changes when you go from a child to an adult. So at first I was like snow this is magical this is really cool. Then mm-hmm. I had to start driving in it. Then I was like ugh gross. Well, not really early you have to like dig your car out and like chisel the ice and you know all those things. Also learning to not necessarily using your parking brake cuz that could freeze. So keeping your car in first gear or in park and to not use your parking brake which right. was definitely interesting. Yeah, those those small things. Yeah. I learned a lot. I yeah, learned yeah. a lot when I was in Vermont.
0: Yeah. That sounds great. So when you when you go to so Cincinnati's next. Mhm. Is is there something that's that's very different or very similar to your previous studies?
1: Definitely similar because then I had a structure, I was taking theory classes again, I was taking composition lessons again, that was nice. I had a lot more confidence, I think going in, which is also nice. Also had some teaching experience going in. And I think that's why I was able to land a teaching assistantship. Now don't get me wrong, I was like always thinking, oh, I get a theory teaching assistantship. And that'll be my job and, and whatnot. Um, back in the back of my head, I was like, it's probably going to be like all 8 a.m.s." It was. I kicked my butt a little bit. Still does. Like I like I just admit it. I don't know if I counted to 12 right. Sure. As a professor, I mean, I taught them. I can teach that theory. Y'all, yes. I can teach that theory. It's just a little bit of a struggle so early in the morning. It's not for my chronotype. And pretty sure none of my students absorbed any of that. (laughs) It's not their fault. It's just how we're made. Okay. Um, So it was, um, I would say it was mostly very similar. I think that, that if there's any difference, I think there isn't really a music theory program at USC. They had composers teaching it, which is fine. Like I'm a composer teaching it, but I actually had like theorists teaching it. And then there's some like some things that were clear to me the second time around, like music theory, I think was just beaten into my head when I was in high school and I had a good ear. So it was like super easy and I didn't quite absorb it. But I think at the graduate level, I was like, Oh, things are starting to lock into place. This makes more sense. And then also teaching it more things were locking into place. Also great. So that was, it was a little bit different, but I felt like by the time I was a graduate student, I was like, definitely serious. If I'm going to take four years off and then come back to it, I also think my brain was a little bit more fully developed, like actually fully developed by that time. And so wasn't doing like stupid things anymore. Like yep. it's time to I don't have to go to class today. Now I was like, no, I'm going to go to class because I'm kind of paying for it. So, yeah, yep. you know, just a little bit more mature that way.
0: I agree with you on the the taking that a break probably should be taken at some point. I, I, I took mine in between master's and doctorate, but yeah,
1: yeah, that's totally fine. It's, but but a break somewhere.
0: Yeah. And I, I think even you just feeling like that was, that was going to allow you to just kind of live life, like give you life experience that you may not have had is I, I, like, like you said, you go back to your, your master's and then, you know, eventually your doctorate and it's like, all right, now I know I want to actually do this and I'm like I'm ready to to get this rolling.
1: That that's exactly it. And yeah, I've had friends who did it in between. Actually, my former professor, Michael Fide, did it in between like masters and doctorates. Like mm-hmm. I just think it's healthy. You just need to take a step back as a creative. Yeah. And just you know, see where your values are again, and you change so much, like well, as a human, you change so much, but especially during that time, I just think it's very educational and kind of necessary to take a break somewhere in there,
0: yep, absolutely. do you, in fact, go right into a doctorate after the master's?
1: I do. I was like, yeah, we made this commitment like <laughs> let's let's just do it. You know what I mean like. And four years off was like, that was a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, and the master's program, like I think any master's program, it's real quick. Yeah. Um, I would say, um, and if you're a composer, it's like you, unfortunately, like you have, well, not unfortunately you have to do a recital. Like, although at that time I I had problems with recitals, but now I, I like them. That's a whole other thing. But um, you kind of have to like, when I have a new master's student, I'm like, okay. So you have a recital coming in three semesters. (laughs) Like you have to have that conversation, which doesn't really give you time to breathe anyway. And I don't like talking that type of shop to begin with because it makes me seem like, okay, I'm trying to check the boxes. At the same time, you do have to check the boxes. And there's that time in between where you're trying to get to know your student, you know, you're trying to get to know your teacher, etc., I will say that, yeah, I wanted to go directly into it. I did apply to other programs just to see, um, but it, Cincinnati was like, they were still giving me a good teaching assistantship package and it worked out really well. So yeah, I, I, I think that's another reason why I went in. As a composer, I was like, okay, I had to do this recital I just got started. I, I don't think I studied with all the faculty. I really made a cognizant effort to like study with everybody to, again, to get those different perspectives. So that's why I did what I did. It worked out for me that way.
0: You know, even that conversation you have with that master student where you're like, you have recital, whatever, it seems like it's worth it for them to at least understand the kind of the timeline issue of what a composer has to do. Right.
1: No, absolutely. That's it. And um, it's my job to make sure they follow that timeline. Um, They may or may not have the skills yet. I mean, I hope they do as a master's student, but again, it depends. Have they had time off? Like I can tell the difference between one who went right in versus one who hadn't. Again, like it's, it's no judgment here. It's just facts. And so again, my job is to have them be the best composer in their style or figure out what their style is. Um, at the same time, they do have to produce a recital. That takes some pre-planning. They are not only a composer, but they are also the producer of their own show. That takes time. <laughs> like, like, you know, that is, a, that is an education in themselves. And in fact, that's why I'm actually okay with recitals, because I think composers need to learn how to produce their own stuff. That's just very important. It's a life skill that you won't necessarily get anywhere else. So um I have to have that conversation within the first couple of weeks. It's like, okay, what do you have? Who do you know? What do you want to write? Let's get a portfolio. Like, do you want to go to grad school? Are you gonna go to are you gonna get your doctorate right away? Yeah. Let's, you know, do you have to write a large ensemble piece, which used to be a requirement, maybe still is, but the pandemic has kind of changed that because turned out that once upon a time playing in a large ensemble was a, little, was a little bit hazardous to our health. So it wasn't quite happening, you know, like things have changed a lot. So, but it is having that conversation of like things you need to do and pre-plan and that's something that composers need to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. In the doctoral portion, is there it's still just like a major, like a final thing is as, as a major project again. It, that?
1: um Well, it depends on the school. For my requirements, I had to do a doctoral recital that was about, you know, like 50 minutes long. Um, I had to take exams, kind of, they were restructuring the exam and I kind of got stuck in the middle of it. And then I had to have a major piece of music. So originally... My dissertation was going to be my opera about the housing bubble, but then I got hired or a job. So they're like, well, you did write an orchestra piece that will suffice. Mm. I'm like, cool. Um, and then collecting signatures and all that. Um, when I was teaching at Texas Tech, um, they they did not have a recital requirement. So there were there was also no guarantee that their final project would be performed. Uh, that being said, um, I said, Y'all need to get your stuff performed as much as possible. If you're in a conservatory environment, you need to get to know your future colleagues. You need to find who your friends are. You need to find who your people are. They would write a major work, but then they'd have a document explaining, you know, like a document that went along with it. So it just depends on the school, uh, but definitely I could... Comfortably say somebody's writing a major work, whether there is a document component to it or not, depends on the institution, uh, National Association of Schools of Music Accreditation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, <laughs> to answer your question. Sure.
0: <laughs> was it was Texas Tech the the first job? Or was it
1: no, um, I was actually hired as a visiting professor at Ohio Wesleyan University in Delaware, Ohio. Mm-hmm. which is right in the middle of Ohio like right there mm-hmm. uh 45 minutes um north of Ohio state on the 315 mm-hmm. um so i was there for 6 years so they they converted my job to tenure track I was very lucky um
0: cuz once you finish the doctorate
1: Um, no, actually, um, well, they actually insisted I have my doctorate before I got hired, which is why I had to switch my dissertation projects. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, no, that's a whole, you know, money institution thing. Mm -hmm. They don't always convert people's jobs to tenure track. Yeah. So I was very lucky. It's tenure track. Um, they did give me tenure, but I decided to go to Texas tech Um, So I was at Ohio Wesleyan for six years, Texas Tech for four years, and then um, at Lehman College now, finishing up my first year without being in the country. It's wild. I, I didn't plan it this way. I kind of like... You know, it'd be be great to do one step at a time. You know, uh, this concept of baby steps, I said a lot to the Egyptian students here. So they kind of turned it into a meme. Like they wrote a piece, clicked a piece together, and they called it baby steps toward redemption. It's like, I see what you did there. (laughs) Fled into Ramadan. So, you know, baby steps. And I was like, I was like, baby. So they know what baby, if they don't know what baby steps is at this point, I don't. <laughs> one was not paying attention, but anyway um yeah, so that's my that's my academic career in a nutshell yeah um over many years of teaching so yeah,
0: have the positions you've had at Ohio Wesley and Texas Tech and Lehman now been similar or have they have they had like a, a an entirely composition or composition theory or other <laughs> duties as assigned as we like. Yeah. To say.
1: Um, my gig has always been, uh, composition theory. Um, actually, uh, my job at Lehman right now, I have not been teaching any composition students, but I have been teaching orchestration, but at Texas tech, they would not let me teach orchestration. That's a whole, whole thing. I hope to start recruiting more, uh, composition students. So the thing with Lehman college is that, um, my predecessor was John Curliano. So no big deal. Like no, no. the dean during my interview was like, um, I think you need to like get an Oscar like within five years without okay. any course release. I was like, yeah, no big deal. We laughed. It was hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's not happening. Um, so that was uh John Creliano's part-time gig. Um, his full-time gig was at Juilliard. Um, his first gig was Lehman College and then made it so that he could teach at Juilliard. You can't do that now anymore. Um, and basically, I mean, the guy is like 84 years old. Let's just say that his generation may have turned his job into a no-show job. So, like he taught his orchestration class and then taught at Juilliard. So let's just say there aren't any composition students now I got and I will be teaching a composition, a group composition class in the spring. So mm-hmm. baby steps, but sure. it's mostly been theory. I'm good at teaching theory. I think I'm really good at breaking stuff down and explaining it to people. I take pride in that. Um, even at 8am I can do it. Mm-hmm. Just might a little bit of a, be a bit of a counting struggle, but, yes. um, no. So I've taught like pretty much all the theory classes have not taught a form class, but I did teach some form when I was a TA at uh CCM with the honors class. Like I can teach fugue really well, actually. Sorry. I don't mean to brag, but Oh, and I can teach not a form real well. And I taught it here. And uh, I taught them about shtumundrang, which can show up in classical era sonatas. And Mm -hmm. I found the panda meme where he's like smashing the keyboard (laughs) because they're like shtumundrang. I was like, this is it. Fun fact, that was from an ad 10 years ago, an Egyptian ad. So I was like, dude, it's in the culture. And when my colleague Naha was translating in Arabic, I just heard she was like, something, 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 Panda. I'm like, if Panda means this is awesome. So, um, so yeah, I've taught all the theory stuff. I really have. I've taught set theory, like everything, even RL skills. I've taught it all. Awesome. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's very cool. W- was, was there any particular reason to, to leave one institution for another?
1: Okay. Official answers.
0: Okay. Um, Ohio. <laughs> this is where it's like edit time. <laughs> maybe.
1: <laughs> no, um, but but actually seriously. Yeah, yeah. These are these are my answers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We'll have drinks next time I'm in or sure. wherever. You know, maybe yeah, I'll yeah. come to PASIC. That'll be a Please. fun time. That'd be awesome. I would love to come to PASIC. PASIC is a
0: fantastic you would love, Dude, you would I love wanted,
1: PASIC. oh my God. Um, I wanted to go to the premiere of Andy Akiho's piece. Oh, so yeah. bad. Yeah. Like the president of PASIC was like. DMing me. He's like, do you want to come to PASIC? I'm like, I'd love to, but like so much travel. It was like so much travel anyway. Um, and he's a Dodger fan. So
0: we, yes, Joshua. Yeah. He's been on the podcast. Yeah.
1: Yes. The Ohio Wesleyan bless their hearts. They've been having an enrollment crisis for the longest time and they've been cutting faculty positions. And actually my last year there, they were forcing a lot of retirements, And uh, And one of my calls, no, it's, it was really bad. Um, And somebody who's a composer who has six students in their studio is not as quote unquote profitable as others. Now, again, I I had tenure, but there've been some austerity measures at that institution. It was very scary. And I've had a lot of friends who've been forced into retirement, took the early package and even had a colleague we lost their job, but then petitioned. It, it, was, it was not a great situation. In Texas Tech, I was living in Texas, and I didn't think that in four years that the, the, the governor of Texas could compete with Florida. I actually started not feeling safe as a human and also not feeling safe as a woman. Uh. And like, I had an awesome studio at Texas Tech. I miss my students. I had a very international studio. I'm very proud of that studio. Yeah. Um, I had um, it's great one of live. my, it really is. They need a new building. Yeah. They really do. Um, it's hurting. Um, but like my student, Alex, just got his DMA. I'm so proud of him. Um, my student, Ali from Iran, Um like he got his master's. He's going to continue his doctorate there. Like, um, my student, um, like, I just, I miss my students and they're like, I'm proud of every single one of them. Like whenever somebody was like, who's really cooking in your studio, I was like, actually all of them are doing really well, yeah. honestly, like across the board, like my undergrads, my graduate students, and they're doing their own thing and they're, they're really successful at it and I'm proud of them and I miss them. And so like, and I, I went to a school um, in the Bronx, and I don't have graduate students. Like, maybe eventually I'll teach at the graduate center at CUNY, but like, yeah. Yeah. Texas was a little much for me. Gotcha. And it was kind of like, I'm a big city girl, it's not mm-hmm. a big
0: city. And it, there's literally nothing around it.
1: Yeah, so I married an art historian and he's like, there's no real art museum here. I said, I'm sorry, hun." Like he moved out with me. Uh-huh. And I wanted to stay married to him. That you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah I just got gotta make yeah. Okay.
0: Absolutely. Jen, I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. First question uh, an issue in composition. Um, the composition field that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts.
1: First thing that comes to my mind. Um, mm-hmm. I follow Score Follower on Instagram, and they make these really funny memes. And one of them is like, I think it, like younger people do it. I try to prevent it, but like, there's a lot of like resume inflation of like trying so hard, and mm-hmm. it's a pet peeve of mine that people inflate. And I'm really, really trying to get young students to not do that. But they don't know how to write a resume, so they go, at, they go online and they copy a resume thinking that I need a huge resume, but they're only 18 years old and that's okay. So, yeah, I don't like it when people inflate their resumes.
0: What, um, so what does that look like when they inflate it?
1: Saying that they're international if they maybe like went for something else that wasn't compositionally related if that makes sense, so like, pay okay to play stuff. Um, oh sure, yeah, I got you. I just, just be honest.
0: Uh, next question. Take this wherever you want. Being a woman in the field of composition.
1: Uh, it's getting better. There was a time where I, and still, there's a part of me that wants to be known as a composer because I definitely sure. have the composer tendencies, like mm-hmm. <laughs> having big opinions, which started a long time ago. I am proud to say that I'm a woman composer. There's also a thing where it's like, I present as a woman. So it's like, I can't really hide it. I would say if, if there were any difficulties of being a woman composer, I think it's more being a woman academic mm. that I feel like I've, I've encountered more difficult. And I think when I first started being an academic, I was younger. I was literally like 10 years younger. And mm. so I couldn't tell if it was like sexism. I couldn't tell if it was like ageism, um, so I do, uh, on occasion, do I get taken as an expert in my own field? It's better now. I will, actually, I will say this, um, being in Egypt, um, turns out that, uh, well, I'm in a Muslim country. It's a lot more conservative. Um, I was told a couple of times that my work dresses were inappropriate because I showed my legs. Mm. As, as one Instagram, where it shows like a sister mini sister Minnie is a cat with a Hijab. It's adorable. Very subscribe is, I guess I was Bikaram. So, you know, um, that's been interesting. And then with like tech people. So like, I know how sound works and I know how speakers work and dealing with the high D people here from, they're like, they're like, Oh, you have the wrong converter. I'm like, no, it's not plugged in. Like, I was like, your cord is literally in not in, you know, mixer number five. It's okay. But yeah. Okay. So right. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Still some things needs to be done.
0: Yeah. You, you, you just will give the extra five minutes just to, just to let that, let the dude. The
1: dude gave get me to another the another adapter Yeah, I'm just like, I'm just like, yo, I'll just like sip on my tea and just watch this go down Yeah, (laughs) and say nothing. Because if I say anything, it's, I'm just going to be told I'm wrong. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Whatever. Gross. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. uh, Other questions. Not, not as serious. uh, Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it?
1: Oh, I would be curious to see that. I will say that um, there was one time at Ohio Wesleyan, I still get this now. Um, they say that my doppelganger is Olivia. Wilde. I don't see it except sometimes I see it. So, um, oh, yeah. Once when, yeah. Okay. Right. Like when I say it, like you wouldn't be like Olivia Wilde, but like my I students did. took headshots of Olivia Wilde and put them outside my office. And once it was like an early, I'm not like a super early person. I'm like, I'm like the bear chronotype. I'm like likes locks. Like, let me wake up around nine o'clock. Okay. Um, And I was like, I don't remember taking that headshot. And it was actually Olivia Wilde. Um, (laughs) Once there was a video of Olivia Wilde, like she was doing some kind of protest and okay. And Omar was like, sis, I thought this was you. And I was like, who is this person? I was like, that is my chin. That's God damn it. So like (laughs) when I had the really short haircut, no one said that, but like, so that's not an impression, but uh, technically she looks like me because I'm older, but whatever, it's fine.
0: There it it's is. Fine. Yes. That's how you that's how you frame it. Yep. Oh, Living while does look like me.
1: Huh. Yeah. Totally.
0: Just change perspective. Totally. It's fine. Definitely. Yeah. That's going. All right. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Obviously in Egypt it's it's anything that shows your legs. So I get that.
1: Yeah. I had to like suddenly buy pants. So now my joke to Nahla I was like, do I need to wear pants to this thing?
0: Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just kidding. I already know the answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I honestly, so I am the person, I actually, all of my stuff is practical. I know that's a cop-out, but like, let's go with your answer. But like, even my husband's like, you need more shoes and I'm like, why
0: do you have like a, oral Hersheiser jersey or something like that that's
1: oh i'll tell you what i do have okay so like fun things so um i have a friend who works for apple plus tv and he mm-hmm. gave me a ted lasso care package so i have a first season te- um, um not a ted lasso jersey oh my gosh what is there? richmond richmond i have a richmond jersey with dubai air on it so before banter um, I love the first season. I have some issues with the second and third seasons. My, my wife I and have. I,
0: my wife and I are currently watching the second season. We just started last night, actually. Okay. So I can't, we'll I don't talk have enough to. We'll talk after you're done. Okay.
1: We'll talk after you're done. That sounds good. Um, so that's impractical. I guess that's like impractical, um, at being in Egypt. Part of me is like Maybe I should get a masala jersey, but also you can get that everywhere else. Um, So many photos, so many depictions of masala out here, and I'm actually here for it, which is awesome. awesome. So we'll go with the we'll go with the Richmond extra extra large jersey that I have. A lot of fun.
0: That's great. Um, What? Okay. Next question: What is a great movie, and what is a terrible movie?
1: All right. So the first thing that popped into my head. I haven't watched it in a long time, but one of my favorite movies is Get Shorty. I love Get Shorty. Um, A lot of quotable lines. Terrible movie. Okay, most. um, I had a hard time watching the latest uh, Wonder Woman movie, which oh, um, yo, um, Wonder Woman was my hero. Like. I watched that TV show as a child and I do like the, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything. And the yeah, first movie
0: was so good.
1: The first movie. Well, well the first movie is fun. I mean, it's a superhero movie. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. second one, like, I mean, I, I, I think I literally blocked out some scenes from my memory because I don't want to go through that pain again. It was just stupid. Like I had so many problems with it. Like it was like, like a, an accident. I just couldn't look away. And I feel bad for you and your listeners. Like when I watched the movie, I had every single thing that was wrong with it and terrible. Yeah, that was, that was not, that was not a good film. Um, I also, and I have some haters, not a film. (laughs) Dear Ted Lasso writers of the third season, get your shit together. (laughs) I Really? I have so many problems. Okay. But, but please watch it. Like I would like to trade notes. Like I want to like it. I have a Richmond Jersey for crying out loud. <laughs> I have a Ted Lasso tin of teas. You know, you know, <laughs> I, I, I made, I made Ted Lasso shortbread, like, please, please, nice. please writers, please, 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 please fix it. <laughs> hey.
0: I have I have heard this from okay. friends who are, who are who are far along. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on, but I know it's stuff. Okay, is I'll
1: tell you. And this has to do with writing music. Okay, because timing. Yes. The first season of Ted Lasso, they're half hour episodes. Yeah, yeah. They are now twice as long. Why would you do that? Yeah. I would be like, your piece is great. Can you make it twice as long? No. Yeah, it would be terrible, right? Done. You can't, you can't. I'm probably saying this because, like, it's dinner time right now for me. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna watch the latest episode of Ted Lasso and we're gonna scream at our iPad.
0: Okay, nice. (laughs)
1: That's why we pay for the VPN. That's right, (laughs) so we could yell at our television. Yes, (laughs) I want them to fix it. I want them to fix it so bad. Yeah, anyway.
0: Next question: What's a favorite book?
1: I should know this off the top of my head, but one of the most fa- my favorite books that I wrote recent uh, read recently, um, and I don't want to get this author's name wrong. So this was part of the Reese Witherspoon Book Club, and I thought it was very hilarious. As a side note, I actually read lots of cookbooks, like a lot of them. Mm. Um, I've read cookbooks since I was a child. And so, like, I have cookbooks I want to get when I come home. I also want to find a good Egyptian cookbook. Honey and Spice by Baloo Babaloa. Lola. Baloo Babaloa. Trying to remember which African country she's from. It's a coming-of-age story about, like, an African... College age girl uh going to school in London. And it is really funny, really sweet. Um, I just I was listening to the book on tape. I I went to a baby shower while I was at Interlock and had to drive to Cleveland. So it was like that way. And it was laugh out loud, funny. It definitely kept me awake on the trip, but also I was just like reading chapters out loud um for for all the women on the listening on the, to this podcast, the first chapter is so funny. I I love that book. I might reread it. It's, it's, it's like one of my favorite books.
0: Well, you mentioned cookbooks and I sort of on this, when you were at Mizzou, there was a side conversation going on that I was not, that I, I didn't get to hear a lot of, but I know there was a lot of discussion with one of my colleagues who's um, also asian about asian cuisine and so um and i was curious what what are some of your f- uh, favorite dishes to make
1: okay so fun fact um i've always wanted to make korean food but my mom just eyes it and i was never I never did it, but the one seven, seven milk street magazine has been making a few of them. I have been making pajang, which is um, a green onion pancake. Really great. My friend, Spencer Arias, actually, we did a pandemic. We made it together virtually like, and it was really great. Really like making that. Um, I have a really good pad Thai recipe that I like making. If you're talking about specifically Asian foods, um, my new favorite uh, New York Times uh, cooking author is Eric Kim, and I actually tried his uh, gochujang um, sugar cookies. So it's like a um, it's like a snickerdoodle with a kick, and he has a whole bunch of Korean recipes. I haven't been cooking here because it's hard to find some ingredients, and also converting to Celsius little bit better um but uh let's go with the pad thai and the which is southeast asian
0: oh, it's a
1: green onion pancake
0: yeah awesome what's so what's the kind of what are you going to miss the most cuisine wise from egypt
1: okay so this country is sugar sugar everywhere i mean sugar cane is really prevalent here things i'm going to miss um do really good falafel. Egyptian pita is whole wheat and it's very good. And I want to figure out how to make that at home. Fata, which I hear is more Lebanese, but fatta uh, fata is like a breakfast food actually. So it's like really crispy fried leftover pita with rice. They do their rice so well here. Um, it's a short green. I'm going to have to try to figure that out with like leftover meat. It's really amazing. There is this dessert called uh, Om Ali, which is like, you take crumbled, um, they call it biscuits or cookies, or you can use like a croissant thing. And it's like their bread pudding, but it's not a pudding because there's no eggs. That's amazing. Um, They have this pancake that um, I tried in Luxor. It's like layered, but it's not quite croissant. It's not quite phyllo. But if you put tahini and molasses on it, that is divine. Um, and there's this like pickled, uh, like tiny pickled eggplants with the salsa and they're pickled and that's amazing. But we found a New York times recipe that will work and pickled anything. And, um, yeah, those are, those are the foods I will definitely miss out here and Turkish coffee, which Egyptian coffee, same thing. So that's been great.
0: What's different about that?
1: um turkish coffee is just like a very finely ground you cook like the water the grounds and sugar if you're adding that in there and you just wait for the grounds to settle and you sip it there's no filter
0: oh wow Mm -hmm. does it like are you awake like instantly from it
1: i mean actually no um i mean it's just like taking a shot of espresso um Mm -hmm. it's been fine i actually did have a shot of turkish coffee in the evening maybe it kept me up a little bit but not really so Mm -hmm. i don't know
0: all your travels where is somewhere that you have not gotten to that you still want to get to
1: this sounds uh cheesy rome uh because my husband has promised to take me there because he lived there for a year so he's promised to take me there so you go
0: Rome. Have you been to Italy before?
1: I have been to Italy before. Um, I've been uh, in the foothills uh, um, and to um, Southern Italy, but not Rome.
0: All right. Nice.
1: Oh, and Korea. I'd like to go to Korea sometime, actually. That's on my (laughs) list Um, because I've never been. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, what do you mean you're going to Vietnam before uh korea and i'm like That's a fair, fair question mom <laughs> and she's like why not korea and i'm like oh yeah so korea yeah definitely korea <laughs> south korea like to find where my peoples are from you sure. know half of them
0: fair enough <laughs> all right uh last couple strangest funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you
1: my housing bubble opera. Um, I didn't have a dancer playing the main character, so I had to be in my own opera. Ooh. And I'm not a dancer, and my acting is not great, but that's okay. So that's my strangest performance opportunity or performance there.
0: Did you did you inhabit the character? Were you we did you best
1: to- I could? I was like the, the dancer that is like the um I forgot, oh my gosh, I don't know my own opera. See, we just think forward. um uh, <laughs> she's supposed to be a college co so the, the 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 plot of the bubble, the housing bubble opera is like a college student um is able to buy a house from her student loans. Mm. she's totally taken advantage of
0: yeah yeah, and you, and you dance.
1: I moved his movement, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a speaking part or a singing part. I just was like walking along, <laughs> talking to the banker, landlord, loan officer. Yeah. It was fun.
0: Yeah. All right. Oh, one other thing I didn't mean to ask is your last name um, is do people like try to French it up? Jolie, they, are, they, uh, are they like there's it's not Jolly, right? Like, is that, um, that
1: it's fascinating what that my name now that because I'm a composer and they yeah, refer yeah. to me like, let's rehearse the Jolly, they might yes. be like Jolie. I um uh, uh I did a sound art collaboration and they spelled it like Jolie and it was printed incorrectly. It is Jolly, it rhymes with trolley and it mm-hmm. definitely has the EY at the end. That's just what I was born with. So um, people have mispronounced my name, yes.
0: But and they Jolie, have made it like, like Angelina like, Jolie, like that I mean, kind of way.
1: They have made it fancier, and I'm like, yo, I'm not that fancy. I'm still, <laughs> alive, <I'm> still alive, man. Still
0: alive. Nice. All right, uh, Jennifer, Jen. One last question: What one piece of art, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything? Has impacted you the most recently?
1: I really, I've been loving the poet uh, Maggie Smith. She's um, she's known for her. Oh my gosh! Yes, you can make this place beautiful. So, um, and I'm well. That's a line from her poem. But um, I actually wanted to set a piece uh, from her um, from her collection of tweets and poems called "Keep Going." Although I couldn't get. Clarence in time from her new editor, um, or, or her new agent. I've been really loving Maggie Smith's poetry and her writings, and I'm I'm reading her memoir right now. Is this the- Oh, her poem actor? is called Good, no, Maggie Smith. So um, okay. this is, she's a Columbus, Ohio poet. Okay. The name of the famous poem is called Good Bones. It is beautiful. I love it. And I loved her Keep Going series loved it. I followed every single tweet of it. So Maggie Smith is awesome. And y'all should check her out.
0: It was so great to have Jennifer Jolly on the show. Thanks again for your time, Jen, and enjoy the summer and catching up on all those commissions. And congrats once again on both your Opera America grant and for getting a chance to catch up with your family and your cats, which are also your family. As a cat dad, I know. This week's rave is both travel and an art gallery. As mentioned in the opening, I was very fortunate to get a chance to travel with my wife to her International Communication Association conference in Toronto this past week. Weather was perfect. Restaurants were awesome, the town was lovely and fun to walk around in, it was so great! We had a chance to take a day trip to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side, which is pretty spectacular. You definitely need to check that out if you get a chance. Specifically, while I did get to see a few cool places, including the Toronto Islands, the Hockey Hall of Fame, Kensington Markets, and Chinatown, my favorite place to visit was the Art Gallery of Ontario located somewhat just north of the center of downtown. I'm always a sucker for great art museums, and this one is no different. While there was a lot of great stuff you'd see in many museums throughout the world from all time periods, there were three things that really made the AGO stand out. First, there was a strong focus not only on local artwork to Canada and Toronto specifically, but on First Nations artists and artwork. In fact... Many portions of the museum had selections in three languages, English, French, and, depending on which collection you were in, Inuktitut or Anishinaabe, for which the latter is the ancestral land that the museum resides on. Two, the AGO made special focus for works by all populations, particularly those of women, and did so by not having a special women's section. They just had everything put in all there together. And three, and most impressively, if you were looking at a work of art from prior to the 20th century, and you'd see possibly one person of African descent in the work, one of the paragraphs that described the work on the wall would have some context as to why that person was there. Here's one example from a piece of artwork from the 16th century, attributed to Flemish painter Peter Clausen's The Elder, entitled, Moses Breaking Pharaoh's Crown. Quote, when the painting was made in the 1500s, enslavement of African people was common in Europe. Members of the society in which this work was produced would have condemned the biblical enslavement of Jewish people, but they accepted the African enslaved child at the center of the painting without question, end of quote. Overall, great stuff. And as I've stated before on the show, If you have a chance to travel outside of your city, state, country, whatever, do it. You'll be enriched in so many ways. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.